You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So for some reason, every time I'm up here, the, the weather seems to coincide with the scripture I'm reading about. And uh, it may be cold, uh, but it was nice uh, it was nice breathing that cool, fresh air. I'm glad to see everyone was able to make it. And uh, we've been reading out of the book of James, reading out of the book of James. And last week we spoke out of James chapter four. And today we will be speaking out of the last, or I will be speaking out of the, preaching out of the last few verses, verses 13 through 17. I'd like for us to, uh, to stand as I read the word of God. James chapter four, verse 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business <clears throat> and make, make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Amen? Amen. We can be seated. <clears throat> so as far as we see, we see what I meant by, by the weather there, your life is like a mist. And we saw that this morning when you woke up and went outside and you could see your breath. If some of you could, I'm not sure if everyone did. I was able to. Um, this, this portion of scripture, chapter four, it seems like some things have shifted, like something has changed in the way that James is speaking directly to the, this group of believers, this, this group of Jews that have been spread apart in the early church. Beforehand, he would, he would often say brothers. He would, he would seem to be softer in the way that he would speak about the issues that concern him. But we see, as we saw last week in chapter, uh, chapter four, verse one through 12, he, uh, he jumps right into the middle of the issues. If you don't remember, this was speaking directly about uh, the sins that, were go that, that he wanted to, to um, identify, right? He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. He says, you adulteresses. He calls them adulteresses. That's the first time he's done that so far. And he tells them, draw, draw near to God, be miserable, weep. He calls them to a life of humility, to run away from pride a much more direct James. And here we have the same thing continued. He's direct. What has changed? I think, I think what has changed here is he's speaking almost directly some of the things that his brother, Jesus, spoke. His brother, Jesus, was dealing uh, in, in, in his lifetime with a group of Jews, a group of Pharisees that were causing him some trouble. And we see that the same spirit of this Pharisaical nature was visible in the church 
in that time. And he is dealing with it. He's been dealing with it throughout chapter one all the way to chapter four. And so I want us to first, before we move forward into James chapter four, those last verses, to read a portion of Matthew chapter 12, just so we understand what's going on, maybe what is echoing in the mind of James while he's been writing this book. If we could uh, move to Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, and we'll read to verse 37. Here, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. And here Jesus says, you brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, if you remember any of the other chapters in James, almost every portion of this aligns with something that James has been saying. Um, We see, can good fruit come from a bad tree? Can bad fruit come from a good tree? He just talked about that in chapter three. He spoke about that. He spoke about, uh, <clears throat> he spoke specifically about words. I don't know if you remember Pastor Ovi talking about the tongue and the evil that is in the tongue. And even James saying that there is no man that can tame the tongue. And yet here it says, for by your words, you will be justified. Let me tell you, none of us will be justified by our words. We all fall short. Um, Christ here is dealing with these Pharisees and James is, it's echoing in his mind. Why is it echoing in his mind? Well, because we know that at one point, James was made aware of the things that Jesus was saying. And these, the period where he was made aware must have, been, must have been pretty, almost traumatic, something that probably stuck in his mind. Why do I say that? I say that because we see in verse 46 through 50, uh, something that happens after he had been speaking, Jesus had been speaking. It says that while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. So after Christ had just called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and is pointing out the brokenness and the, the evil nature in this Pharisaical system, all of a sudden now, while he's still speaking, his brothers and mothers show up. Let me tell you, this message got to his mom. So someone was so aggravated, they literally went and told Jesus' mom on him. Something like that, right? And they show up. And all of them, all of them together, like an intervention, they want to, they, they want to tell him something. I wonder what it was. Most likely, hey, you're making our name, you know, Look bad. Stop talking this way. This is a bit too far, Jesus. You've done a lot, but this is a bit too far. Who knows what they would have said, but it seems like it was some kind of intervention. And why I say that this was possibly traumatic for James is because James was responded to by Christ and not in the way he would have expected. His whole family shows up, and what does Jesus say? 
Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother, sister, and mother. Imagine that message getting back to you as James, because he wasn't able to even, it had to come from the crowd to get to Jesus saying, they're looking for you. And now this message works its way back. And he's hearing, yeah, he's, he's saying, this is what he said. He said, my mother and brothers and sisters are these guys around me. The ones that seek to do the will of my father. That's the important part. And that's what we will be talking about as well tonight, uh, this morning, the will the will. And is our will the will of the Father or is it not? Is it our own will? And I think in that moment, James was in a different place because his will was probably not the will that Christ would have wanted him to have, the will that he was functioning under. So let's, let's begin by, now that we have that in our mind, let's begin by working now through, through these verses that we have ahead of us, 13 through 17. Now James says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. He says, come now. We haven't seen this yet. James has not spoken this way at all. He hasn't said these two words, come now. It's, it's, it's a moment of when he wants to tell you, pay attention. I'm directing this towards you. This is something different. He's, he's, he's entering the confrontation and he is heading directly for it. He only does it one more time and that'll be read next week. And he says, come now, you who say. You who say. <clears throat> well, we know what they say. We just read it. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Well, you who say, he's saying, you who speak, you who, you who have these words, these following words, these following words that we read, um, they don't seem to be too bad. It's a plan. It's a plan to make some money. I think we all have that plan. We all want to make some money sometimes. It's not a bad thing, right? <clears throat> but he says, you who say specifically these things in this way. Why, why the saying? Why is that important? Well, the saying is important because just like we read and what is echoing in his mind and what he has spoken about, about the tongue and Christ saying, the, the words are a reflection of the abundance of the heart. What, Christ, what, what James is saying here is, you who say, you're showing me your heart. You who say this, the way you speak is a reflection of your heart. And that is why he is bringing that specific part up. He's not just saying you who think or you who plan, but you who say. The thing is, it's, it's, right, it's not by chance that James says the law of God is a mirror. 
God's word is a mirror by which we can see what we are in light of who he is. The law reveals the nature of God, that he is holy and set apart. That standard allows us to see that we are not. When you look in the mirror of man, when you look at our own mirror, the words that we speak, it reveals a different nature. It reveals a nature and something that it reveals a law that encourages us to continue in the sinful patterns we have lived in selfish ambition, greed, lust, pleasure. That is because rather than revealing our deformed and perverted nature, the mirror of man, what that does is it distorts sin and makes it something insignificant. It normalizes it. We don't see how it has deformed us. We cannot look at ourselves as the standard because we'll be blind. We'll remain blind. The world uses one another. We use one another as that standard sometimes, and we fail because instead of looking uh, when we should be looking at the word of God, that is why we often hear from a lot of people, most people that you speak with, that most people are good. They have good intentions. We're good people. It's just a few, the crazies, the rapists, the murderers. These are the ones that are, you know, aberrant. They're the ones that have gone off the way. But that's, we know that's not the truth. The word of God says something different. To them, the word of God is a circus mirror. When they look in it, they say, there is no way we can be that deformed. But if we look at ourselves in our own mirror, there's no distortion. We all look the same. We as human beings out of pride, as was preached last week by Lucas, Pastor Lucas, want to be the judge and create our own standards and laws. And when we speak as a judge, we pretend that what we will to happen will happen because a judge can decide your present, your future, or he can take them away. He can regulate how you are to live and where you are to live. If we claim to be judges, we claim to be God. And this is what's going on in this verse. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go, we will go. What they are saying is they are revealing the nature of their heart, which is one of self-worship. They are in control. They are sovereign. They are God. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. They speak with such arrogance that they think that today or tomorrow, the present I would consider tomorrow the present as well. I mean, it's so close. Is theirs. It's granted. It's right now is granted to me. I'm here, right? It's already mine. But there's only one thing we can know for sure. And that is that everything we take for granted is granted by God. And it is his to take away. And this is what's going, this is the issue that's going on here. And this is why he is addressing people that speak this way. We will see, and we have read already, that he points a different way of speaking and saying. But we will get there. Then he says, we will go. The problem, the problem word here, sorry about the squeaky voice, is the word will. Will. We will go. It invites a feeling of assurance, of inevitability, 
right? Mingled into the word will, almost you can think faith. If you can imagine me saying will. If I say, you know, I can go and buy a block of cheese at the grocery store. When I say I will go, it's almost like me stating, I, I'm, I'm assured that I will. I, I have this, it's inevitable. I will go and do this. There's almost this, this faith that makes no sense. There's no, way that, there's no way they can be sure that what they will do, that they, what they will to do will happen, but they speak as though it will happen. Now, there is a, there is, there's an interesting part of history that starts the same way. You hear here, people are saying, we will go. Well, let, let, me, let me give you a little story. It reminds me of Neville Chamberlain. I don't know if any of you know who he is. Neville Chamberlain. He's got a nice mustache that I can say. Uh, <clears throat> Neville Chamberlain. He was the prime minister of England just prior to World War II. He had just gone at an emergency meeting, a few days of meetings with Adolf Hitler, and uh, he was trying to figure out a way to make peace. And he arrives back in England after meeting with Hitler and negotiating a deal that was signed by him and by Hitler. And listen how it reads. We, it starts with we. The German Fuhrer and Chancellor and the British Prime Minister have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for our two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. We are resolved that the method of consultation shall be the method adopted to deal with any other questions that may concern our two countries. And we are determined always we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference and thus to contribute to assure the peace of Europe. Assurance. They will. We. It's, it's, it's faith in themselves. Neville was quoted once arriving back saying, my good friends, this is a year prior to the invasion of Poland by the Nazi troops. My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British prime minister has returned from Germany, bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. The arrogance, right? Because just a year later, as I said, Germany invaded Poland and the Second World War began. And this paper that was put in the faith of men, we will do this. You know what? Adolf Hitler did, he changed his we will, and he said, that's just a scrap of paper. He was quoted as saying that. So the will of man is far from anything that can provide assurance or security. It is far less. Any plan that we make, that we begin with the word we, cannot afford us any security except the security that we desire it to happen. But even that fails as we see with these two men. That is what happens when every man is his own judge. There are no doers and only judges. They twist the law to suit them. And they are their own standard. Let's move forward. Verse 14. 
Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, for you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And this is a powerful statement here. James is making the, our lives, he's, he's, he's saying they are like a, a vapor, like something that we breathed out this morning, something that we can't catch, it slips through the fingers, there is no way to control It goes its own way. The wind blows it and it's gone. And living a life and with a heart that starts every intention with we will is a life that does not take that into consideration. It has forgotten what we are and that is a vapor. He actually takes it further than Isaiah. Isaiah says, we are like the grass that withers and we are gone. That's a season. That's longer. But he says a vapor. And another psalmist says, like the evening shadow, that is our life. It just passes by. It disappears. It fades away. As the light goes away, it fades. And it's gone. We are like a vapor. I don't know if uh, any of you have tried to catch your vapor. Um, But I have tried. And... uh, (laughs) It's not successful. Um, and I've seen men try. I've seen men try very many times. Um, this vapor, I can think of many stories of how life is like a vapor. I remember a young boy coming into the emergency room, he was ran over by a truck. And I could see the room trying to catch a vapor, grasping at a vapor. They would not stop. We went long, longer than expected. And no one wanted to call it. It's a vapor. Comes and goes. Seven years old. Saw a 30-year-old man shot in the belly. By the time he got in, he was purple. There was no life in him. We did what we could. It was a vapor. I heard the screams of loved ones, thought something was wrong, but was told, it's okay. They're mourning. Just a vapor. Yeah, life is a vapor. We don't realize that many times until we're face-to-face with the nature of our lives, which is death, we will pass, and it will be just a vapor. And most recently, the one that I'm not sad for, because she's with, with her father in heaven, my grandma, just last week. She was advanced in age, and she didn't know what was going on. She had stopped eating, and she went to be with the Lord. Just a vapor. Maybe now we can understand or we can begin to grasp this idea that there is no way we can speak this way if we know our God. There is no way we can live a life that we put our assurance in man or in ourselves because we cannot grasp that vapor. It will do as it has been set in God's sovereign will to do. It will flow the way it's meant to flow. 
And while we do our own plans, God has his own ultimate will. Now, uh, if we continue to verse 15, it says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, the interesting thing here is he says, you ought to say, ought. It's an important word, something we need to keep in our minds. Why ought we? Because there is only one, one will that is independent and truly free. It is a will that does not need to plan for every variable because it has predetermined every variable. It does not choose the best road to take, but paves it. It is the will of God. Outside of it, there is only destruction, the inevitable fate of all those that oppose his will by seeking to do their own. This is why you ought to say, if the Lord wills, this is not just something we say, right? It is born of a heart that is submissive to God. And we see in the prior chapter that it speaks about that. It says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil. If you are submitted submitted to God, if your heart is in a place of submission, this is a natural way to speak and think. Now, when we say this, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we live and also do this or that. Some people may, may think this is, it's, it's, a, it's a wrong way to think, but some people think that, hey, I'm paralyzed now in the way I plan my life because now I require some kind of sign. Uh, I need God to tell me where I should go if the Lord wills. How do I know the will of the Lord? Where am I, what am I going to do? Is there something that I can do? Well, uh, that's not, not the right way to think about it because this... Uh, this statement, if the Lord wills, is not meant to paralyze us. We are not to be seeking for signs from God in order to do this or that. Actually, Jesus, if you remember chapter 12, I don't have it up there, but he actually mentions, he mentions that this wicked and evil generation seeks for what? For a sign. And the only sign that will be given to him is the sign of Jonah. And guess what James calls these same people, the chapter above, adulteresses. Same words as Jesus, you wicked and adulterer, you, you, you wicked and adulterous people. So they're, they're, they're right in line here. So should we fly then by the seat of our pants? We know that it shouldn't paralyze us. We should live a life that it says right after, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But uh, if we're not paralyzed, then should we fly by the seat of our pants, sort of flowing in the water, letting the will of God take us where we should go and just flowing with it, right? God is in control. Let the tide bring you in to where you need to be. You don't need to swim. The only problem is if you're not swimming full out, the tide will not bring you in. It will take you out. It brings you out to deeper water further away than where you should be. God requires us to do the part that he has given us. We are responsible. 
We are to still live our lives in submission to him. We're not to just flow. We are responsible. We are to be good stewards of every moment that he has given us. Not only every moment, but every word, as Jesus says. A life of inaction is the other side of the ditch. We have some people that forget God, I'm going to do. And you have some people that when they hear this, they say, hey, um, I'll let God do and I'll just ride it. I don't have to do. It is the wrong thing because in that ditch is the sinful desire to serve ourselves again. By what? By expecting God to serve us. I don't know if, uh, if any of you, I'm sure many of you have seen The Office, but maybe not all the episodes. But if you remember assistant to the assistant to the regional manager, you're right. Uh, you seeking, you being an assistant to the regional manager, seeking that the manager serve you so you can serve him. It's sort of the same thing, right? As a slave to God, we want God to, slay, to be a slave to us so that we can be a slave to him. I don't know if you get what I'm saying, but <laughs> well, I'll, I'll explain. It sounds insane because it is. But people live this way. So uh, let me just give you a few explanations. Uh, imagine you cut grass, you edge and trim for a living, but your contract states that the customer must pick you up with your mower, fill your tank, drop you back home when the job is completed, um, and they need to pay your maintenance fees and your equipment for you to do this, this work. You will never further your business, I promise you. Even if you're the only game in town, they instantly realize they don't need you. They'll just buy their own mower and cut it themselves. And I want you to know, God doesn't need you. We need him. And we shouldn't be the ones that are inactive in our lives with Christ. Seeking that first, he puts everything in place before we do anything. Right? The type of Christians that if God wants me to run, I better be outside on a nice Sunday afternoon with my Nikes and shorts, and he better make me feel like it. Because otherwise, I'm not running. Right? This is the issues that we deal with, that I deal with, that we fall into. That he needs to lay flat every obstacle, even, I don't know if you've ever seen those three-foot-tall fences made for the wiener dogs things you can just step over. But man, if that's there, that's my hindrance. I can't go forward. God forbid. God is calling us to step forward. It's not a comfortable walk. It is not a life of convenience, but it is a life in service to him. And that is what is precious. But I think here in the West, this life of convenience sort of mingles its way into the gospel and in our relationship with Christ. It's insane to think that God should first be a slave to us before we can be a slave to him. So we must live our lives in submission. He is sovereign and whatever we plan is always dependent on him and him alone. This is not a nullification of our responsibility as we've spoken about. 
And some will say, man, my free will is gone. Now I am responsible to the will of God, not my own will. The problem is that that's not true either. The only free man, the only free man and the only free will is the one that is secure in knowing that ultimately God's will is greater than his own. Why do I say that? Because every variable that you, that in your own planning as a man or as a woman may make, you must think of every plan, a plan to fix every variable, anything that might come up. There is, uh, there is fear and there is worry. But when you are with God, you plan, but know that whatever may come, ultimately he is in control. That is a free will. That is a free will to do as he pleases not bound by the things that bind everyone else, the worries of this life. We are free. So our will is, remember this, our will is dependent upon his, whether we know it or not. And knowing this will always posture our heart in a way that is submissive to God. This heart is one that is circumcised. It is new and it will always say, If God wills, then I will. Amen? Verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Boasting arrogance. Paul says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified and I to the world. He also says that I boast in my weakness. Why? So that he may know Christ. Right? These are the things we are to boast in, not in our own arrogance. What does that mean? Boasting in our own arrogance. It means you live in a way that you speak with assurance without having none. You do not know God, yet you live like you are God. You live a delusion. You perceive the success that you have as a result of your own doing rather than the doing of God. I know this truth because I've fallen it many times. And it's whenever I neglect to draw near to him. As, uh, as was said last week, that we must draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Now, I have, a, I have had an issue for most of my life. It's an issue that when I was younger was a problem, but now I am fond of it. Um, I like fire a lot. Uh, <laughs> I like to burn things. I like to melt things. Just something I like to do. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I do like gasoline, too. Uh, I don't know if any of you have, but if, have heard, uh, if you remember playing with the torch or the Bunsen burner at school, right? It's, it's awesome. This, this, it's almost living, this thing that's combusting right in front of you, and it's hot, and it's energetic, and pretty cool, right? Unfortunately for my mother, uh, as a kid, I did some things that were not okay, uh, if she kept uh, any lighters around the house, I'd be the first one to find them. And shortly after, she'd find whatever I decided to burn under the stairs in this little, <laughs> I'd hide under there, turn off the light, and just light them up to see them burn. 
Eventually, I ran out of things to burn, but I still had the lighter. So there was a little light that had a string that went all the way up to, to turn it on. I would, I burnt that and watched it go up. She eventually found it. She was not happy. I, uh, I received my punishment. <laughs> but being this close with fire, I ended up learning a few things about it. And it created a... a I, like I said, I'm, I'm fond of fire today. I don't want to be burned, but I, I do enjoy looking at it. I enjoy uh, starting them in, in uh, organized ways. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about a flame, I don't know if we, if we have the picture of the flame. Yes, we do. The hottest part of the flame is at the top. And the coolest part is at the bottom. Interesting if you see that. And I noticed that as well, right? You can put your finger real close to the flame underneath. Oh man, you got to keep it way ahead when you're up there. And uh, this is not only true for the small flames, like we see here, but for those big flames as well that, you would, that I start in my backyard two or three times a year. Those are nice. It's the same truth. I realized when I was younger that if I stood straight up, it was, I had to stand further back. From, from the fire that was burning. Uh, and one of those big fires in my backyard, I'd, I'd have to stand further back. But if I sat down on like a little stool, it was more comfortable. The heat wasn't as bad the lower I went. And uh, the, an interesting thing is that God in Hebrews 12, which Lucas pointed to last week, Hebrews 11, we have Luke, Hebrews 12 here, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire, Right? Now, we are called just previous to be humble to Christ, to God, and to not be proud, right? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, to the humble. So as if God is this consuming fire, the only way to approach him, it says you must be humble in his presence, is to get lower. And as you get lower, the fire isn't as hot. You can crawl lower and lower until you get to the point where the only way you can get closer is by digging your face to the ground, hands sprawled, and you are laid flat before it. And as we get closer to God, this is what it means to draw near to him. It means that it is not, it is not we are just doing this thing. It is the natural way. As we get closer to God, we cannot stand. You know what, what does stand? The pride in our life stands and it gets burnt up. The weeds in our lives, the sins in our lives, as we draw near to God, it burns them up. And as we, if we stay there near to that fire, that all-consuming fire of God, Nothing, our flesh, as much as it would want to move up, as much as it wants to stand up, it's quickly told the God that we serve and who we are in light of that God, in light of our God. That is the way that we can put pride at bay. That is the way that we can draw near to God. That is the way that we will not boast in our arrogance and we will boast only in Christ alone. We must stay close to that fire. Verse 17. 
Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Interesting shift. Um, feels like this doesn't go right hand in hand. The right thing to do. Remember what he says in verse 15? Instead, you ought to say. So we know what we should not do and we have commands of what we should do, right? But he's saying you ought to. These are, these are moral situations. How ought we act in different situations? The one that draws near to God, like we said before, the one that is humble and flat before our Lord, he's the one that is seeking the will of God and seeking to do the will of God, as Jesus says. And as you seek to do the will of God, we have, we have uh, as you get closer to God, we can know more clearly what his will is. And so this is not something that says, hey, you know the right thing to do. He knows another right thing to do. Everyone, and if you don't do it for you, and if you don't know it for you, it's not sin. Um, if you don't know it for you, it's not sin. Really what it's saying here is you should know it. And if you don't know what you ought to do, that means you are not seeking the face of God because you need to draw near to him. And in drawing near to him, you will know his will and your will will come in alignment with his will. That, that's what it's saying here. For the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. That is for all of us. Not only ought we know what to do, we ought to know that we ought to know what to do. And if we don't know what we ought to do, we need to draw near to him and humble ourselves before him. In this word, in prayer, seeking his face. And if you do not do what you ought to do, repentance is required. It is a sin. So at the first levels of, of our walk with Christ, we, we begin to learn what we should not do and how certain things that we should act. But as we draw near to him, there are situations that are not written clearly in this word. But by knowing his word, we can interpret everything that comes our way so that we can act in the way we ought. So let us focus on this word. Let us read this word. Let us draw near to him so that we can do as we ought to do. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.